Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Catherine Grant about her new book, A Time of One's Own, Histories of Feminism in Contemporary Art. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me today. So I wonder if we could start by having you tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm an art historian. I'm currently a reader in modern and contemporary art at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. Um, And I moved to the Courtauld Institute of Art last September. So um, until then, I was working at Goldsmiths, also in London, uh, working in the art department and the visual cultures department there uh, for the last decade. And um, my research has really been interested in issues around feminism and queer history and thinking about what it means to write art history when we're looking at contemporary art. So what what does a contemporary art history look like and what strategies what might we have to adopt that might be a bit different to um, kind of traditional forms of art historical writing and research? And so how did you come to write this book? I came to write this book after noticing a rise in feminism uh, coming up in contemporary art after a period in which often many artists that I saw were working in sort of ways that seemed feminist didn't want to be known as working in a feminist way or didn't want to be known as a woman artist if they identified as women Um, and really kind of around the time uh, that there was an, an interest in the mainstream art world in feminism there was a big exhibition in 2007 called Whack Art and the Feminist Revolution um, that was curated by Connie Butler uh, in LA and that generated a lot of interest alongside Judy Chicago's dinner party being um, installed for the first time since the 90s in the Brooklyn Museum. So for me, it was a sort of a realisation that there was this interest in feminism in contemporary art. And I wanted to start thinking about why that was, particularly in the face of it having been seen as kind of outmoded or unfashionable when um, not necessarily by everyone, but in the sort of the the kind of commercial art world or often in sort of institutional contexts in the sort of 90s and early 2000s. So in this book, you start in your introduction by laying out a lot of your concepts, including this idea of anachronizing feminism. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the idea of anachronizing is really about bringing different moments in time together. When we think about something being an anachronism, we would normally use it as something negative as a kind of um, a way of sort of disregarding something. And I wanted to turn it into something active, this sense of bringing times together or having some uh, sort of historical material brought in the contemporary moment in a way that made us think about our contemporary moment, as well as us thinking about the historical moment that was being uh, represented. And that was a strategy that I had seen in a number of um uh, artists working with histories of feminism and sort of queer histories in a way that I found was a really exciting conversation with historical material. So uh, very different from uh, 
kind of scholarly research and instead this kind of um, grappling or learning from history that was very active and engaged and often kind of involving sort of rewriting or reimagining um, or re-speaking. So with anachronizing feminism, I was really interested in what parts of feminism's histories have kind of in a way been left sort of unfulfilled like what are the possibilities within feminist histories that might be returned to and picked up and elaborated on in our contemporary moment and in turn sort of helping us figure out what we might need from a feminist politics in the present day so this sense of sort of coming up um, against moments in time that might not necessarily be exactly what we need for this moment but they start to make us be sort of feel our sense of time through this sense of anachronism you know so there's a way in which when you're out of time you can sort of feel time more than when you just sort of feel like you're kind of in the flow of things and that that to me was something very interesting particularly with what I was saying before about kind of how there'd been this resurgence of interest in feminism and how that felt uh, in a way um, kind of a shift in how people were looking at feminism within the art world. And now coming up to the present day, it seems quite strange to think of feminist politics as an anachronism because they're so vital and part of our contemporary political landscape. But when I worked, started working on this book in sort of around sort of 2007, it still felt like there was a questioning about what a feminist politics might mean for the contemporary moment. In the introduction, you also lay out the geography that you're talking about and the timeline that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Can you share that? Yes. So I worked on this book over a long period of time. And so as I was kind of going through it, I was trying to figure out, am I identifying like a sort of a trend that's in a, very, a particular geography? Um, what's the time frame going to be? And in terms of geography, what I realized was that I'd started off um, with works that um, were exhibited in North America, sort of a very sort of New York focus. But then increasingly, as the project unfolded, I became interested in the links between uh, kind of cities like New York, as well as London, where I'm based and the kind of projects that I was seeing in London. And then the connections between uh, friendship groups, as well as kind of um, organisations like the Women's Art Library in London is quite uh, a sort of an active character in the book. And I've had a long standing um, relationship uh, with uh, the Women's Art Library and th and thinking about these kind of um feminist networks that might be through music or archives or friends and in many ways the book doesn't try and sort of say this is you know this is a, a kind of a summary of what's happening in the UK during this period or North America but instead it kind of it stays within a kind of an Anglo-American axis in general because those are the networks that I have um, most access to but in a way I tried to articulate that almost as a sort of a, a sort of a mapping that gives a sense of possibility that maybe other people could take up in relation to other contexts or, or their own feminist networks um, and you had a second part of the question which I now can't remember about the time about what kind of when you're thinking about contemporary and looking back what what kinds of times are you thinking with that so the the works in the book go between 2002 and 2017 
And when I started working on it, sort of around 2007, 2006, I didn't really see it as a book project. It was more a response to a contemporary moment that I was living through. Then as I've been writing the book, then I was thinking, well, where should I end this? Uh, should I track it back further? And in the end, I decided to concentrate on this kind of 15 uh, year period, because in my mind, it kind of um, shows this sort of beginning of interest in feminism in what I see as quite a fanish queer mode or a reverent mode of returning to feminism in arts. And then it tracks it to um, around 2016, 2017, when it felt like feminist politics meant something different in that context. I mean, in North America, we can think about Donald Trump coming to power and the women's marches and a very different political political context for feminism in Britain. Uh, we had uh, Brexit and uh, a sort of rising xenophobic context um, and austerity politics that really felt like things were shifting again politically um, and what the artists were doing were maybe moving into a different area. So also the period tracks where a sort of a shift in the digital, I guess. So most of the artworks in the book are um, uh, sort of pieces that use uh, zines or films or photographs or paintings or drawings. And it's at a moment where it was still quite hard to potentially get material from feminist archives if you if you weren't actually able to visit the archive or if you want to see um, a film that was uh, sort of an obscure feminist film, you'd have to get a VHS copy from a friend. Whereas by 2016, 2017, a lot of uh, feminist archival material was circulating online. Uh, you could maybe then get that film on YouTube and a kind of, um, uh, in a way, what had been happening in art had then mapped onto more of a sort of context in popular culture where uh, now if I want to look at some uh, for sort of key second wave uh, periodicals, I can look uh, like on a digital library. Um, whereas during the course of the book, sometimes I'd have to try and contact a librarian and say, would you be able to scan this for me? And then they'll send it to me. Whereas now it's all on JSTOR for free. So there's a sort of a, a changing context in terms of the circulation of the historical material that I was interested in that also felt in a way that I would um, sort of finish it as that availability started to become a much more kind of general currency and it was less this kind of um, work in the archive where you would have to go and find it yourself. Um, and in a way, those discoveries have a kind of a preciousness to them because you've had to go and find it or somebody's given you a photocopy that they've got from an archive rather than something you can um, get online. But in a way, some of the tendencies I see in these art practices, I now see on Instagram accounts and uh, kind of online sharing. So there are there is a relationship, but that's kind of why I decided to kind of end it when I did. And also because I'd been writing it for a long time. So I thought that was time to finish. So in your first chapter, you talk about this idea of fandom and fans of feminism. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so being a fan of feminism was my first attempt to understand what was going on with artists and writers and curators mining histories of feminism for something they needed but not necessarily having a reverential or kind of um, familial relationship to those histories and so I thought 
being a fan of feminism described what was happening because if you're a fan of something you have a sense of uh, passionate attachment adoration but also a fan can rewrite or mash up or kind of cut up the kind of the material that they're a fan of and create new fan objects so for me I was really interested in um, the work of some of the foundational fan studies scholars such as Henry Jenkins who explored media fandom as an active community community of producers not simply consumers and so I thought this was a really good way of thinking about this relationship to histories of um, feminism uh, this sort of fanish community that I could feel within my own peer group and also this sense of when you're a fan of something like a, a pop star or TV show often people will think it's um not serious or sort of denigrate it. And when I was first working on this project, I would have people who would say to me, well, well isn't feminism outmoded? You know, why, why are you interested in feminism? Hasn't it become institutionalized? And almost this sort of attachment to feminist politics was seen as a bit embarrassing. So I thought this sense of fandom that when you met someone who was also kind of a feminist and a fan of feminist histories, you would have this sense of uh, possibility and connection with them in a way that felt a bit different to some of the ways of kind of connecting with scholarly material. Um, and it also began because uh, I saw some zines by a New York group called LTTR that initially stood for um uh, lesbians to the rescue but also in subsequent issues of the zine it stood for listen translate translate record um, and lesbians tend to read and the way that they use the zine um, or you could say it's an artist book is something that fan fandom has done um, over many decades around music and media fandom but what was being remade and sort of commented on and discussed within the zines of LTTR was uh, kind of feminism, queer politics, trans politics, uh, senses of sort of personal narratives, as well as sort of political action, as well as sort of drawings. And so it's kind of collection of, of material that in a way to me felt like a fanish act of coming together and then sharing it through a very easily distributed item like a zine. I mean, their zines are lovely. They're sort of, you know, really wonderfully produced but they're still a fairly cheap and easily disseminated form of communication you don't have to wait for a gallery to give you a show to make it and share it amongst your friends and they really created um, a very strong sense of a queer feminist community in New York that then stretched to other cities I saw it in an exhibition in London and some of the people in LTTR were friends with people I knew in London so it kind of also started to map this network that I talked a little bit about um, in relation to the introduction. So I was kind of interested in thinking about desire, attachment and history in a way that didn't require uh, someone who's interested in feminism to become either a daughter or a granddaughter of previous generations of feminists, which is often in feminist thinking, that's often the model that's used in terms of thinking about intergenerational relationships. In your next chapter, Killjoy's Castle in London, you then start talking about the idea of learning play and thinking about ideas of memorializing and archiving history. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so 
Um, Killjoy's Castle is subtitled A Lesbian Feminist Haunted House, and it's by the Canadian artists Alison Mitchell and Deirdre Logue. And I saw a version of it that was um, at the BFI Flair Festival in London, which is the Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. And the iteration of um, Killjoy's Castle in London was kind of monitors of this really immersive installation that the artists have made in various locations. And then a series of gravestones, which had been made um, in collaboration with the BFI Flair curator, um, Nazmia Jamal. And the, the gravestones commemorated UK-based feminist and lesbian organisations that were no longer here. So it was a, a very evocative experience sitting amongst these gravestones. It's a very camp installation because it's based on sort of Christian, sort of evangelical Christian hell houses, kind of um, sort of warning you of all these sins. But instead of it being a warning, in a way, it's a sort of it's drawing you into these sort of uh, stereotypes uh, around sort of lesbian identity, but then sort of exploding them and turning it into. Um, this amazing uh, kind of experience instead. So sort of sitting in the gravestones, I recognize some of the organizations that were on the gravestones. The others I didn't know, but kind of being in that uh, installation set me off exploring what they were, kind of they were included uh, publishing houses, club nights, um, film groups. And so what I was interested in was, in, in Killjoy's Castle, I think there's a form of reenactment going on. And I was interested in thinking about reenactment in an expanded sense. So in the uh, installation of Killjoy's Castle, there's many characters that are brought to life. They're kind of reenacted that are often sort of stereotypes, um, often negative stereotypes around lesbian identity that are then brought to life to be inhabited differently in many ways. And so I was interested in this idea of reenactment and whether I could think about it in relation to these gravestones, which weren't reenactments, but instead they became. I guess kind of like a script, that's the way I saw it. And a script that we had sort of, as visitors to the installation, you had to kind of engage with or were kind of offered to engage with. And so thinking about reenactment, I read um, Bertolt Brecht's idea of the learning play, which he produced in the 1920s. And he really produced the idea of the learning play as a kind of a provisional model that wasn't necessarily... Um, enacted that much but in it what I found was really suggestive was that he he sees the learning play as a as sort of taking a script and then a group of people work with that script and they might change it by performing it like reenacting it but also discussing it um analyzing it and it wouldn't just be actors taking part in a learning play but there would be um sociologists or philosophers or um other people sort of working or sort of interested in the politics of the play. So I started to think about these returns to feminist histories as creating learning plays for the viewer, in which if we wanted to, we could take up the kind of historical script that was being offered and do our own kind of research and analysis of it. Um, and to do a bit of that, I interviewed um, Naz Jamal, the curator, and she talked to me through the kind of the way that she brought together the list 
of organizations that were on the gravestones and how she brought together friends to make them. So even the making of the gravestones almost became a kind of a form of learning play that then was transposed into the exhibition space. Um, and it led me to think about fairly recently um, deceased organizations, including one called the Lambeth Women's Project that is very near to me in South London that had only very recently closed down and a number of my friends had been involved um, in trying to keep it open. And in a way it was a, a kind of a, a project that was supporting um, women in South London and had been sort of funded for a number of years during the 1980s, but then had really struggled to keep going. And in a way was part of a kind of a feminist community that was being cut and um, kind of discouraged in all kinds of ways um, over the 80s, 90s and 2000s. So I wanted to take the invitation of the gravestones and then do my own sort of research into one of the institutions that I felt kind of connected to and really think about reenactment as a form of sort of taking up a moment in history um, and that these gravestones sort of allowed anyone who wanted to to start working in that way. So rather than reenactment having to be about some actors reperforming that then we watch as the viewers, we take part in that learning and that reenactment. Um, and I guess the sort of the final part of that chapter is the gravestones were... Um, sold off after the installation uh, to raise money for a lesbian and gay immigration support group. And um, I bought one of the gravestones and it's still in my office um, at work. And so sort of to continue the gravestone sort of legacy, my one sort of sits there, it's called faff, which in English to faff around means to kind of procrastinate, doesn't always translate to um, like American English, um, and I like this idea, it, FAF stood for Feminist Activist Forum that Nazdramal had, had been part of and apparently hadn't lasted for very long. Um, and so this little very tiny history that she'd been involved with came up on the gravestones and now it continues in my office and I kind of have it up there as a reminder that um, when I'm faffing around, I should actually be researching or checking my emails or in a way like a little reminder to sort of keep doing my own work and uh, not to kind of get too discouraged. And also as a talking point for people who come to my office, whether they're students or colleagues, and I'll be like, why have you got a gravestone made of polystyrene there? And then I'll tell them about Caldwell's Castle. And so it feels like that story will kind of keep going. And the other side was the other gravestones. Some of them got donated to the Feminist Library, which is another organisation in London that has been very precarious over the last few years. And when I went to try and find the gravestones in the library, the um, one of the founders couldn't didn't know what they were, couldn't remember them. And then eventually said, oh, the gravestones. And they were kind of buried in this room that was full of kind of boxes because they were trying to move out and trying to find um, a new place uh, for the library because the the council that had been housing them were um, had asked them to leave that building. So they no longer had a very cheap um, place to live. So this sort of act of very kind of, in a way, sort of unruly archiving, like they were there, but they were quite kind of hard to access. And they were also part of a move that at that point, it wasn't clear whether the library was going to find a new location or a new way of supporting itself or whether that too would have to close. 
And so a sense of even very re recent feminist histories being precarious and sort of these gravestones might not have moved to a new building. Luckily, they did find a new building in South London and very happily, the gravestones are now beautifully on display and uh, a copy of my book's in the library. And so it feels like that kind of, it moved through that moment of possible precarity. But I guess all those elements made me think about how kind of art projects can reach out into the world in all different kinds of ways and and how they might sort of encourage us as viewers to become sort of active participants. You then take up that idea of reenactment in the next chapter, which is called A Time of One's Own. And I think this is where you bring in Benjamin and the idea of the constellation to think about time. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. So this chapter thinks more about the idea of kind of embodying moments in time and what it means to kind of reenact as a kind of a, a sort of a form of embodied quotation. So you go from the gravestones and to um two works that are kind of more straightforward reenactments, but both sort of play with this sort of sense of affect and um a relationship between historical moments in time, which um I looked at through Walter Benjamin's like very famous uh essay on the concept of history and his idea of the constellation. And in, in Benjamin's work, which has influenced a lot of thinking around history, the politics of history, queer temporalities, um, the idea of the constellation, he describes it as kind of two moments in time coming together in a sort of a flash or a shock. And I was more interested in thinking about this as a durational coming together. And so that's why for me, the learning play was more useful because it wasn't the, about these moments in time coming together in like a sort of um, in a quick sense of coming together, but instead coming together and having this sort of much slower sense of what does it mean for these two times to interlink with each other? So the first work in that chapter is a film by Pauline Boudry and Renata Lorenz, who are artists based in Berlin and Vienna. And it's a film called Salamania. And it's a really um, amazing film in which um, the young, the younger artist Wu Sang performs for the older artist Yvonne Rayner um, and they reenact um, a, a very queer film of Salome from the 1920s. And also Yvonne Rayner teaches uh, Wu Sang a section from one of her uh, films from the lives of the performer. So there's a sense here that we have both um, a kind of a, a sort of a long history, um, this kind of idea of the character of Salome as this kind of queer, um, this threatening character um, that was taken up by Oscar Wilde. And then uh, the 1920s film was made by Alan Asimova with this kind of amazing sequence of dancing, which almost looks punk now. If you kind of see the, the her costume, she's wearing this blonde wig and these very um, kind of um, innovative costumes. And then you have Sang performing it in front of the film footage and Raina performs as the, in a way, a, a sort of a queer step uncle for Wu Sang. And that continues through to their conversation as Raina tries to teach Sang one of her dances. So I was interested again in this idea of the learning play as partly learning from the play through 
taking up a gesture? What does it mean to take up a gesture in a different body to the original one that did it? Or, you know, what does it mean to take up a gesture whilst being corrected by someone? Um, and then this sense of discussion alongside it. And I, I saw their work as kind of, um, in a way, being the work of fan scholars. So Boudry and Lorenz tracked this history of Salome through uh, the work of Raina up to the present day uh, with Sang. And they kind of combined these moments in history um, that had this sort of Brechtian quality to it in a way that it was kind of inviting the viewer again to sort of think about these different moments in time and what does it mean for Raina to relate to Sang both as a kind of a queer stepfather but also as a teacher and in real life um, Raina had taught Sang and so there was this relationship this sort of pedagogical relationship both off screen and on screen and in a way returning to Raina's own history as well as this longer history of Salome and I put that alongside um, a work by a young British artist called Faye Green. And she tried to learn one of Yvonne Rayner's works uh, called Trio A, which is probably Rayner's most famous uh, piece. And that's a work that can only be learnt if you spend time with somebody called a transmitter. So Rayner has taught it to a number of people who know the official way to do it. And then that's the way you can learn it. Um, but Green wasn't able to do that. So she learnt it herself from YouTube videos, but she also did try and contact a transmitter, but it wasn't possible for her to go through with that training. So she talks about this kind of, um, rather than the kind of more loving relationship between Sang and Raina, instead Green thinks about kind of um, how this being blocked from official route of learning then produces rage and um, uh, in a way like a, a sense of illicit learning. And so this sense, even if, um, you're not authorized, which again goes back to being a fan. There's still there's there's still a lot of possibilities of returning to history and feeling it in your body. So <clears throat> her version of Trio A is not faithful, and it only has fragments of Trio A within it that she then cuts up with reading from a text that she's written. So she produces a reenactment that is not. Um, trying to stay very close to the original, but instead opens up the original and transforms it. So for me, that really does something interesting that I think Brecht was trying to suggest with the learning play. In your next chapter called A Feminist Chorus, you then take up this question of embodied experience and learning through the idea of the chorus. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so with the feminist chorus, I realized by this point that as I was writing, I was also learning from lots of other scholars, writers, curators, artists. And I started to feel like I was taking part in a feminist group. So I started to think about what was this group? Um, when I was writing Fans of Feminism, there was a sense of, in a way, often being outside of uh, kind of the contemporary art world and finding these people who are also interested in feminism, it felt like this kind of moment of recognition, but not necessarily a community. But as I was doing more writing and um, getting in touch with more people, it really felt that I was doing my research alongside many others and my own work was being informed by them. Um, and at the same time, I was noticing quite a few works which included groups coming together to re-speak material. So it's a different form of reenactment. So rather than like a gesture to be um, 
learned or re-embodied or a kind of an installation for a kind of a solo viewer to interact with. Instead, there was this kind of invitation to either watch or take part in these groups that I decided to think about as feminist choruses, partly because one of the works I look at by uh, the British artist Lucy Reynolds is called A Feminist Chorus. Um, and also because I was interested in this idea of the chorus as um, kind of alongside the main action, but also kind of commenting on it and being like having a legacy of connecting the audience with the action on stage in Greek theatre um, and how um, playwrights like Brecht had taken up the model of the chorus as this kind of interstitial kind of grouping and often I feel in terms of my relationship to feminist histories it's really taking part in a feminist community I'm not going to be like a, a key player in uh, sort of feminism's history but I'm part of this big community of people who identify as feminists and how we combine argue put stuff together and sort of this chorus felt like a way of elaborating on that um, and I also looked at works um like Claire Gasson's work called The River, in which she uh, brought together a group of um, singers, like professional singers, and they sang um, the entirety, the, all of the people who were in the Women's Art Library. So she took a kind of an archival document, the index from the Women's Art Library, which is possibly one of the driest you know, pieces of the Women's Art Library. It just lists all the women artists who are in the library. But in a way, it kind of represents what's in the library as well. And then she used that as her score and then um, produced a score with a, a musicologist to produce a piece that um, kind of held a, a sort of a small space at the South London Gallery uh, in a very dark room. And so it was almost like a kind of... Um, a sort of a religious chant or a sort of a, a recitation. And so I started to think about what it was that she was doing by bringing to life this archival listing, by turning it into a choral work. And again, even though the people watching or listening weren't singing as well, it felt like we were very connected with what was by just becoming um, part, of the, part of the room and part of the experience that we were joining in that feminist chorus, both the, the list of women artists that she was, that she'd used as her score, the singers themselves, and then the people who'd gone to see it. So I guess I was just interested in thinking about this idea of a chorus as quite a flexible one. So it wouldn't necessarily involve re-singing, but thinking about a way of what happens when you get a song or a script and you're asked to sing it, and what does that mean when you're asked to sing it with lots of other people? And in Lucy Reynolds' version of a feminist chorus, she has done a number of different versions of this. And when I first took part in it, I thought she wanted us to sing um, like extracts from uh, the Glasgow Women's Library uh, book collection. But actually what she wanted was all of us to read different extracts simultaneously. So rather than like a beautiful choral work like Gasson's The, the River, Reynolds' The Feminist Chorus is this kind of hubbub of voices in the room where you can hear the people next to you you can hear yourself and you're all saying different things you're all reading from fragments of um, feminist publications and you feel like you're taking part 
it's a different kind of form of constellation, I guess, um, where you can't hear all of it. It's not possible to have access to the entirety of the text on offer, but instead you really hear what you're reading, but in this kind of context. So I was really interested in the sense of inside and outside, what does it do to yourself to be reading with all these people? And I guess the contrast between if I'd just been standing up and reading my extract to the group, I would have felt very self-conscious and maybe not be able to concentrate on the words. Whereas what, because I was with all the other people reading together, you felt this sense of kind of um, being contained and you, you didn't have to worry so much about your own voice, but your voice was still being heard. And so it just created this very interesting kind of texture and context for speaking together so that that was kind of the first half of the feminist chorus and then a bit like the learning play I started to think about well what's a what about when you join in a group but then you sort of you both read together but then you start questioning what you're reading and this sort of sense of discussion which kind of threads through a lot of the projects and so I looked at two other projects that incorporated discussion as well as recitation um one of these took place in uh, Goldsmiths at the Women's Art Library uh, called the Women of Colour Index Reading Group. And it was set up by three artists, Samia Malik, Rahana Zaman and Michelle williams Gamaker. And it was a reading group looking at material um, uh, that was in the Women's Art Library, part of a particular group of material on women of colour that the artist Rita Keegan had gathered together in the late 80s and early 90s and it hadn't much been looked at um, in recent decades and what the artists did was they took an archival piece it might be an essay or an artist statement or a kind of a publication um, information and they would use that as the beginning for their reading group but rather than kind of a typical reading group where you sort of read it ahead of time on your own and then you come together and discuss it in a scholarly manner, what I found was very distinctive about their group was you didn't have to prepare at all ahead of time. And then when you came into the, the room, people read the text sentence by sentence going round the room. And this was something that brought everyone's voice into the room from uh, the very beginning of the reading group. And then it often triggered uh, conversations that were really wide ranging around race and feminism within the art world in London. Um, and it included kind of uh, students as well as some of the artists in the archive. And it created this very active sense of engaging with that archival material. So we sort of began as a sort of feminist chorus re-speaking this work that often hadn't been looked at for a long time, but then it sort of moved into a discussion about the contemporary moment. So again, the sense of anachronizing, bringing together this archival material and then with people's um, kind of uh, reflections on the kind of reality of the art, art world still being very white dominated, the art school still being very um, sort of a majority white space and what that meant for artists of color and students of color and how this index could start to produce a history that gave context for um, many of the artists work. So the chorus sort of began as a way of sort of thinking about this group practice, but then that with uh, works where you watched a group or became part of a group and re-spoke something. But then it also moved into starting to think about how do I articulate myself 
as a writer and a researcher working within this feminist chorus I could see was growing and was really interesting to me rather than sort of um, often when you're writing something scholarly you're asked to kind of say what's original what makes you stand out and instead what I wanted to do was kind of indicate that this could only be done by this kind of feminist chorus developing and growing and in a way sort of inspiring me it's sort of conversations happening and that my writing was very much taking part as just like one voice within this context in your last chapter conversations and constellations you move from thinking about this collective work and thinking through themes into a specific conversation that you create between two artists Lubaina Hamid and Mary Kelly can you talk about that? Yes. So this in a way grew out of um, my continued interest in how to describe what I was tracking in the book. And first of all, I thought I would maybe create my own map of the artists and the organisations and the places that I was kind of looking at and the relationships between them. And first of all, I had a thought that it would be a bit like the map in the L word, which is like a map of who's had relationships with who, who slept with who. This wouldn't be that kind of map, but it would be like who has friendships with who, who works at which organisations. That was my kind of dream as a way of kind of setting out the many links between the artists in the book. Um, and Mary Kelly, as um, a pioneering artist from the 1970s whose uh, work around feminism has been um, really transformational for many people. I knew she was a key nodal point, but in a way it felt like I didn't want to write a chapter about Mary Kelly. I'd written about one of her works called Love Songs in the Fans of Feminism chapter, where she returned to her involvement in the women's movement in London in the early 70s and the late 60s and her students' relationship to that moment. And she'd continued to sort of track uh, her relationship to this sort of transformational moment of the 70s. But it felt like it wasn't, it didn't represent, I couldn't figure out a good way of like mapping this network of people. And so as I was working on um, the Women of Colour index reading group and the Killjoy's Castle installation, I realised that Labena Himid also had this kind of nodal point in relation to um, a history of feminism that prioritised women of colour. And so I started to think about Himid and Kelly as these two people who had reflected um, sort of continually and very sort of... Um, innovatively on their own history and their own place within their own networks. So I decided to use them as in a way, parallel uh, kind of feminist narrators because they are two of the women in the book whose work stretches over a number of decades. Whereas most of the other artists are artists um, who are in their twenties, thirties or forties making their work about um, feminist histories that either took place when they were children or before they were born. So in a way, they were Himid and Kelly were reflecting on their own lived history, as well as thinking about what that meant for their own their peers and their students. So I started to think about this idea of how they created constellations and also the tension between um, 
different levels of art world visibility. So I look at this um, recording of a, a conversation between the um, British, uh, well, the British-based art historian Griselda Pollock and Labena Hamid um, on the occasion of um, a book coming out called Framing Feminism, Art and the Women's Movement, 1970 to 1985, which came out in the late 80s, even though it tracks um, mostly the 70s within it. And in that conversation, there's a real tension around race and black feminism and how that's being articulated within the evolving history of art and the women's movement. Um, with Himid, um in a way, demanding that there is more acknowledgement of black women within feminism and within the art world. Um, and it took place just before Himid then moved away from London. And then subsequently, she... Uh, set up an archive um, called Making Histories Visible that's still present today. And she's also, um, you know, over the last 15 years, been mapping her kind of foundational curating of women artists that took place in the 1980s. So I saw one of her maps, which is called Moments and Connections, that's based on the London Tube map, which in which she had successfully done what I had dismally failed to do for my book, where she does map out... Um, uh, a, a tube map which sort of articulates artists, institutions, exhibitions, publications, university departments, and she offers it to anyone who wants to look at it as a map to, for further research. So these people don't get lost, so, so these exhibitions don't get written out of history and um, the way she did that was very simple and elegant, but it in a way provided all this possibility of what could be researched on each of those artists, each of those exhibitions. Um, and I felt that her relationship to maps, where she's talked about both needing to rip up maps as well as map things out, and this sort of tension between the two, I found that... Um, a constellation helped me think about that. And a constellation in terms of stars in the sky will change depending on where you're viewing it from. So I was also interested in how for Kelly and Himid, both of their networks are very grounded in their own sense of where they were, what their relationship was um, at the time and how they've sort of differently articulated that. So they, their networks don't really cross over, even though they were both in London during the 1980s. But in a way, they together, for me, they map out an important context for feminist art making and thinking about art and feminism, uh, you know, from the 70s to the current day. So in a way, I wanted to produce them as kind of guides. You know, I feel like their work and their right, they both write as well as make art, um, and Himid also curates, and Kelly did curate um, a couple of exhibitions, but they have a very um, nuanced sense of what it means to be an artist that's engaged with feminism, engaged in um, black histories, um, and engaged in basically trying to make the world better in some way through art practice, through what they do in a very everyday way. So rather than kind of setting up a neat history where I say the artists in these books, the younger art in this book, the younger artists are indebted to, you know, kind of this artist and this artist. I wanted to put them together sort of alongside each other in a fairly messy way, but as a sort of a grounding for how a, a feminist network 
might be mapped, even though it's not kind of neat and elegant in a way that sometimes when we're writing history or art history, there's a kind of a pull to kind of slice, edit things out. So it neatens things up and it, it makes a better story, but it might not tell the whole story. So I guess I was trying to sort of think about what the stakes were in, in terms of positioning this work from the 21st century in a slightly longer feminist history. You then end the book with a conclusion called Rooms of Our Own, which you also bring back to yourself and your own position within within all of this. Can you talk a bit about how you end the book? Yeah, so the, the conclusion, Rooms of Our Own, um, I first thought was going to be, I guess, like a a photo essay of my office, which sounds really weird, but I'd been reading uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own over a number of years um, and taking up her idea of A Room of One's Own as being what is needed for um, women writers and her very famous formulation, you need a room of one's own and you also need some money. And so I was trying to think about what it means to potentially have a room of one's own and potentially have some money but very little time. And I think for many of us, that is the context in which we work. Um, and so I wanted to think about this room of one's own, which she pictures as a space for creativity, but she also writes in that book about the need for institutional support. Like she begins a book by being told off for walking across the grass of a fictional Oxbridge college because she's not a scholar. And so she was having a thought, but then the thought gets broken because she's been told she's not allowed in that particular area. Um, and so she sort of contrasts that with this idea of having a room and then traces a history of women writers and how they've sort of found that room and what it might mean, how you might find the money. And so... I wanted to kind of connect my own experience of writing the book with this kind of history that Wolf presents, which also has a fictional quality to it because she um, writes about um, a fictional sister of William Shakespeare, Judith Shakespeare, who eventually um, uh, dies by suicide um, because she can't um, be a writer. And so in a sense, she um, writes a book for all the people who couldn't write. That's how I kind of see it anyway. And I was thinking about this because it had taken me a really long time to get a permanent university job. I'd been working on lots of temporary um, contracts at various art schools and universities since I finished uh, my own PhD. And I was finishing the book in my first um, office that was my own office. And so it felt like a very um, metaphorical but also practical situation because um, my office was in an old halls of residence in a building that was due to be demolished. So it was um, a space that was a room of one's own, but it was also had a temporary and possible um, and possibly sort of decaying quality to it. So I wanted to sort of write alongside many other writers who've used Wolf's ideas and reformulated them for themselves. And in a way, sort of think about what we need to do to write um, and what that means in terms of a contemporary art history. And for me, that does require being kind of situated um, in my own 
kind of sets of experience, even though the book isn't autobiographical, it's still grounded in my own um, experience of the artworks and the people um, that I've met in relation to those works and my own sense of what it means to be an art historian in British universities in the uh, 2010s and going into the 2020s, which has been quite bleak, I must say. <laughs> so I wanted to write it as a, a sense of possibility, but also not to gloss over the difficulties of finding the time to write something um, and finding the confidence to write something and feeling like it's worth doing when I could be checking emails or marking essays or getting back to pick up my kids or, uh, you know, kind of doing a million other things and actually sitting down to write is still very hard. So thinking about that sense of doubt um, and sort of structural ways in which people don't find time or um, justification for their own voice. So in a way, I wanted to offer it as a way for other people to think about their own situation in writing. And also this sense that kind of even academic scholarship isn't written in a sort of a, a kind of um, in a vacuum, but is there's all these pressures um, on us. And increasingly for um, art history, it's being seen as a subject that might not be privileged or might not be worth it in some way. And so thinking about what does it mean to commit to writing about art, writing about writing about contemporary art, um, and really to sort of map out my own experience of writing alongside these works and kind of uh, as a way of kind of putting myself a little bit within it and also reflecting on this sense of fandom, on this sense of community um, and how sort of being alone in my room would then connect up to all these sort of imagined groups, these sort of people in the past, the people in the present, these artworks that connected all of them and uh, sort of create this sense of all these different rooms of one one's own in different spaces and times. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Before we wrap up, can you tell us what you are working on now? Yes, so at the moment I'm picking up on some of the elements within this book that focuses on consciousness raising as a, a sort of formational um, aspect of the women's liberation movement. And what I'm interested in is the ways in which artworks can be seen as being part of a legacy of consciousness raising, like how really continuing this interest in this sort of group work and I'm starting this by looking at a British filmmaker called Annabelle Nicholson that interviewed a number of her friends who were artists about their relationship to creativity. So she asked them what helped their creativity and what hindered it. So that's the sort of first one I'm looking at. And I'm hoping um, that it might work out into a, a bigger project that thinks about consciousness raising in a fairly expanded way and how it both uh, produces a community but also kind of imagines a community that might come into being and how artists have then used that possibility to create artworks. That sounds wonderful. Well thank you so much for being with us today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me.